Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 966. On this episode, our very own Eric Longenhagen and Ben Clemens do their best to react to the storm of transactions we have seen this week, or at least up until they talked on Wednesday evening. The pair discussed things like Isaiah Kiner-Falefa's confusing defensive metrics, remembering Brett Laurie and his own weird early shift metrics, and the mixed reactions to the Colorado Rockies signing Chris Bryant. Ben and Eric also talk about the strategy of the Oakland A's and Cincinnati Reds tearing things down by trading away many of their better players, and how some of this is clearly a result of ownership meddling. We also hear about some of the prospects these teams got back, including one particularly intriguing pitcher. Gunnar Hoagland is a much higher risk pick than the other three guys. And I like that. Like, I like taking the guy whose stock is down because of TJ. But, I mean, that graph you showed me of his slider command was cool. He has very good slider command. He might have a really good fastball, too. Right. Yeah, this guy was carving... Carving the SEC, even though he was presumably dinged, like, on the verge of breaking entirely and needing Tommy John, just sitting in the low 90s, but still dominating SEC hitters by virtue of the fact that he has great command of of a very good slider. But before we get to this conversation, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. It is, of course, not only the best place for you to get your official Fangraphs swag, but you can also pick up an ad-free membership. Good for browsing the site at blazing fast speeds, and more importantly, helping us keep doing everything we do. We sincerely appreciate your support and couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hello again, Fangraphs Audio listeners. This is lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen coming to you from his kitchen table on a balmy 85-degree evening in Tempe, Arizona. I'm joined by Ben Clements. How's it going, Ben? It's good. It's a balmy 57 here, so not, I mean, 85 in the evening in March is kind of crazy. Yeah, we had it. It spiked here. I got a little bit of color on the backfields uh, yesterday. <laughs> had an assistant GM tell me that I looked medium rare in the third inning of a minor league like double barrel action that was going on in the Rangers backfield so um is that better or worse than looking rare oh I guess yeah that's right it would be if I was well done I guess that would be there are like a lot of people who have lived here their whole lives who had like not a great feel for what the sun was going to do to their skin and they are definitely well done with like leather yeah yeah, it's the the first sun crisping of the year is always it always sneaks up on me, and now I have to be better about it. But uh, things are going full bore here in Arizona with big league spring training about to begin. It will have begun by the time folks listen to this. There's also a ton of amateur and minor league stuff happening here in the valley, so it is just wild and crazy and a lot of fun. It's just hard to get to everything while also soloing the raised list. So that's what I've been up to. How about you, Ben? Anything going on? <laughs> no, I mean, it's just been a relaxing week. Haven't really had that much to do. No, um, I've just been writing up transactions all week. I think I've written like six articles this week and done, I don't know, like a PP at one position worth of power rankings. There's a lot of stuff to get done before the season starts, which kind of uh, snuck up. Yeah, this was one of those things where when we had inactivity, there were obviously some evergreen things that we could write about. My procedures were more or less exactly the same. Because there was no impact on the minor leaguers nor amateur baseball stuff that I was doing, like with the prospect list. It was just all happening. But now we have this window. And candidly, I thought the window was going to be 
smaller than this. Like if you would have asked me in the middle of the off season, Hey, how long is this lockout going to last? And when, what's your over under for opening day? I, I would have said two weeks more than it turned out to be like, I would have guessed we had like May one opening day, but here we are where all of this stuff is condensed into a few weeks of like frenetic transactional activity. And uh, yeah, it's going to be fun and intense and Guys are going to have to like Matt Chapman was taking BP 10 miles from my house, you know, 36 hours ago. And now is like his whole life is moving to Florida and then Canada. <laughs> yeah. So of the transactions that have occurred, what is the headliner for you so far? What is what is the first thing that comes to mind that we've experienced here this week? Uh, just Oakland, just burning everything to the ground. I think that's, you know, it's more than one transaction, but... If you ask me what I remember about this week, it would be that Oakland and Cincinnati just decided we don't really want to try to play baseball this year in like a day. Yeah. Do you think what what was our projections for Oakland before all these trades were probably middling, like not necessarily favorable? I think I have some yeah, that's my guess. sympathy for what they're trying to do. I, would, I mean, I'll say this, though. Our projections for them last year were middling and our projections for them the year before were middling. <laughs> like... They don't project well. We always underproject them, and we had them in like you know like a five hundred team, which is kind of what we always do with them. I have some sympathy for the fact that hey, if, if you actually want to spend like a seventy million dollars a year for a long time, you're gonna have to make some tough decisions. This one, they're not gonna be doing that, right? Like I think by the time the season starts, do you think Montas will be on the team? No, I think that we will see Montas and Manaya both moved. Do you think Ramon Laureano will be on the team? He's the one I'm not totally sure about. That's, yeah. But, I mean, and I wrote it in the recap of the Olsen trade, like the prospect return post, that it wouldn't have surprised me if Matt Chapman broke camp with them so that he could bounce back a little bit statistically before they moved him. And, and then, like, you know, two days later, he was gone. Yeah. I kind of think they don't have the budget clearance, right? Like, yeah. like they're not retaining any money on any of these trades either, which is... Like, I think that wouldn't be that crazy of a thing to do. You see teams do that all the time, like keep a little bit of it. It just seems like they, they need to get it really low. I don't think it makes any sense to trade Chapman like this otherwise. Like, doesn't it kind of seem like they had one buyer because of when they were doing it? I don't think so. I think that at least from like talking with people about some of this stuff over the last week as it has begun to materialize, like there are times when we know about deals at the site that we agree not to report because we want to start working in the background on like the analysis and reaction posts and we don't right. want to like break a trade on Twitter before the prospects have been informed that they're changing organizations and stuff like that. But like people with teams want to give us a heads up about what's going on. And it feels like there were a couple other teams who have been involved in discussions for Matt Chapman, but there was I spoke with someone who from a team who I'm pretty sure was one of those and they mentioned to me that they thought like Oakland's asking price on some of these pieces was so high that that some of the deals might get pushed into the season and then the dominoes just started to fall. Yeah, like I think they did okay. Like if you've decided I don't have any major leaguers left, I think they got a pretty good return for Olsen. I know that some people are low on Pache, but I don't know. Like I don't think you're going to do a lot better than that for what Matt Olsen is, which is a great player. Yeah, I thought the package for Olsen was pretty robust and sure Christian Pache has had issues basically he and Drew Waters both like we 
ignored. Some combination of me, Kevin, and Kylie have like all ignored at various points approach issues with those guys that became their undoing as they reached the upper levels. And like, I remember Christian Pache here at 2018 Fall League along with Vlad Guerrero Jr. Like there are people who left six weeks of watching Vladdy and Pache, preferring Pache because they were so terrified of like Vlad's body and all this other stuff. But like, I think it's an interesting buy low. I think that you are getting, at the very least, Pache will will produce commensurate with like Kevin Pillar. Right. Know, like that type of player is, is what he'll, he'll be at the low end just because his defensive ability in center field is so good. Yeah. Like if you told me that they basically have Olsen equivalent asking prices, not, you know, that many prospects, but that percent premium or whatever, like that valuation conversion between current players and prospects, I'd say, oh, okay, so I get it. They're waiting a while and they're only going to trade if things make sense to them. Like they didn't do too badly trading Bassett, right? I don't think so. I think that the the way that they go about it makes it hard for them to do poorly. They tend to get multiple players back in all of these deals like as a way of mitigating risk through diversification, basically. And the A's tend to want, they tend to value proximity more than you would expect a team that is undergoing such a hard reset to value proximity. And that's worked out pretty well for them. Well, when have they rebuilt this deeply before? Well, I guess it, I guess when they've moved pieces that they didn't feel like they could afford to retain, you know, like Cole Irvin was a, you know, very vanilla back of the rotation pitching prospect that they got from Philly and like Ho-Hum, he made 32 very good starts, <laughs> yeah. you know, last year, just sort of like, you know, like this guy's a 40, 45 low variant somewhere in there. And like, he's just basically in the big leagues immediately. So this is what they did with, with Bassett is, and they got, you know, to a degree, they did this with the Matt Chapman trade as well. But in the Bassett deal, they got back JT Ginn, who, you know, was seen as a relief risk guy coming out of high school and coming out of Mississippi State. And that seems to have gone away. Like this guy is, has been throwing strikes now coming off of TJ. And then Adam Aller, who reached AAA last year, who's just another one of these like plug and play, could probably pitch in the back of a big league rotation right now. And then they got a piece back in Zach Logue in the, tra- uh, the Chapman deal from Toronto, who's also like that, like just sneaky stuff, not big velo. Other traits are carrying the load and command of a bunch of pitches. Like they just have this collection of interesting back end guys that they've already started to assemble just from, yeah. from virtue of these deals. I do think they're very good at, uh, you know, winning the war count. Yeah, like they, they never lose the war count. Ever, ever, ever. Because like you said, they get a trillion guys and they get the guys yeah. who produce one war no matter what. And you just add those up. But if you look at when Oakland's been like a, a playoff team, like a good team, which is kind of the whole point of the exercise, it's been when they have superstars. Like there's, you, you can't make a whole team out of Zach Logues, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. And, you know, they are the best at making guys seven through 26 out of Zach Logues. They're so good at it. They and the Rays are like in a class of their own. And I think that's why we always think they win these trades. And I mean, they do. They get the thing that they want done. What in the world are they trying to do this time? Like, are they just hoping that some of the guys they already have in the system pop? Like, if Tyler Soderstrom is Matt Olson, like, fine. Okay. <laughs> right. I, I think they did really well. And if if somebody else, like, can pick up the slack, I like, I just, they aren't actually very good at making the kind of starless team work. They're really good at supplementing the stars. I don't know why they're doing the star supplement move while they get rid of all the stars. 
Right. I think that's fair. I think that people have made cogent arguments before about teams like Oakland. Like they should maybe be more likely to take the risks on prospects like Miami has because someone like Jazz Chisholm can become the type of player who you otherwise wouldn't be able to acquire if you're Oakland. Right. Whereas, you know, Cole Irvin and Zach Logue and Kirby Snead and all these guys are not that. Yeah. You know, if they're really rebuilding this heavily, then you're looking at the top of the next two draft classes. Like you're looking at Jacob Gonzalez and Dylan Cruz and, and Brock Wilkin and thinking about them as potential A's, you know, prospects. But like it's not like Matt Chapman was an early first round pick or anything like that. Matt Olson was not a super high draft pick. Uh, so like some of these guys are going to come from all over the place. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question, and I think it's kind of contextual. Like, to use a bullshit business word. Uh, sorry, Dylan. Like, the A's shouldn't have been doing that when they were good. And they've been very good at doing trades when they're good and understanding what they're targeting. It's just interesting to me that they don't kind of change gears when they know they're going to be really bad for a few years. And, I mean, did they do that in the Josh Donaldson trade? Not really, right? Gosh, I'm trying to remember what they got back for Donaldson. It depends how you think of those guys. They got Graveman. They got um, oh, Brett yeah. Laurie. Yeah, Brett Laurie's interesting. He was a problem when I was at Baseball Info Solutions because that was at the advent of the shift and he was lapping the field because he was one of the only third basemen who was going out into shallow right rather than the second baseman at that time. Right. And so much of the, the defensive run saved calculation was comparing a given play to what the average player at a position was doing. Yeah. Uh, like a ball hit here into this vector is turned to an out this percentage of the time. And you know, that was getting weighted for Brett Laurie. It was, you know, these balls hit into shallow right field were right. never being turned into an out by any other third baseman. So, but yeah, like Brett Laurie, gosh, what an interesting character he was. Uh, there were, there were photos of him like doing Edward 40 hands. <laughs> Like, just with two 40s of, of Old English just duct taped to his hands. <laughs> All right, so he was probably not then, you know, the very top prospect in baseball at the time. They got Franklin Barreto, too. So they kind of did swing big on uh, that trade. Like, yeah, they, was... with Barreto's approach was terrible. So I think Laurie's kind of was, too. Yeah, I mean, they were they were taking some high-variance bets on that one. And yes. maybe there just wasn't anything that wasn't a very Oakland-y package available for Chapman. Maybe they, they called up and everyone's like, God, do you want, like, our quad a reliever and a guy who looks like a good fifth starter and our middle infielder who can't field but can hit 20 homers has power right and, and like gunner hoagland is the one from that deal who has the chance That's of really true. exploding gunner hoagland is a much higher risk pick than the other three guys and i like that sure. like i like taking the guy whose stock is down because of tj but i mean that graph you showed me of his slider command was cool he has very good slider command he might have a really good fastball too right yeah this guy was carving Carving the SEC, even though he was presumably dinged, like on the verge of breaking right. entirely and needing Tommy John, just sitting in the low 90s, but still dominating SEC hitters by virtue of the fact that he has great command of a, of a very good slider. And so now, you yeah. know, I don't think the stuff doesn't play quite like this, but you look at Walker Bueller, who everyone knew that he needed TJ. He fell to the back of the first round as a result. He came out of rehab, which he crushed. Like, crushed his rehab, came out of it throwing much, much harder than before, and then it was just him on the fast track to the top of the Dodgers rotation. Like, that's the type of thing that might happen here. But yeah, you're, you're talking about a guy who is still rehabbing uh, and is now yeah. going to have to do so changing orgs. So I think that is a 
But like, so that's all very difficult. And if Hoagland does, it'll be very impressive that he managed to. But I think that's the kind of thing that Oakland should be doing. Like you're talking about, that's kind of the Jazz Chisholm pick. Like maybe it's not a super high likelihood of that, but he could be that. I, I like those. I mean, I I guess I'll withhold judgment until they finish trading everyone. Maybe they'll keep Murphy and Loriano long enough that I'll pass judgment before then. It kind of feels like they're they're going to get rid of them too, though, if I'm being honest. The Langoliers include, to me, makes it way more likely that they move on from, from Sean Murphy. Exactly. I, yeah. I feel kind of that way too. Murphy's had injury issues. It might be time to, and I guess, you know, granted, two of his significant injuries in the past were broken hamates, and both of those bones were removed from his hands, so they can't break <laughs> again. But, uh, but man, to be a catcher, be a baseball player, pro athlete at all, to have all this happen is pretty ridiculous. But, but yeah, Sean Murphy, he's he's awesome. He's a star level catcher. Uh, with many years of team control remaining. So I bet they'd get an absolute haul for him. It'd probably be bigger than what they got for any of the guys they've moved so far. Yeah, I mean, definitely bigger than anyone non-Olsen and probably bigger than Olsen. It'll be an interesting valuation thing because I think he might be the only catcher we put in our top 50 trade value last year. Eh, maybe that's wrong. Maybe there's one other guy in there somewhere. Will but, Smith. Uh, oh, yeah, Will Smith. But yeah, there aren't many is the point. It, it's right. hard to have trade value as a catcher, but Sean Murphy really does. And like... It wouldn't shock me if he got a huge haul. But short of that, I mean, I don't think they're going to get anything huge from Montas. I don't think they're going to get anything like completely ridiculous for uh, for one year of Sean Mania. I mean, Montas will get better, right? Because he's a, an above average starter with two years left. That's nice. I think that there's a chance they could leverage someone into maybe close to what they got for Bassett for Mania. Mania's projected ARB figure is bigger than Bassett's and, and the amount of control is the same yeah uh, whereas montas has the extra year so so maybe frankie gets them a little bit more i think that's right yeah uh, he does yeah he has one more year i was looking through these today i think it's interesting i like bassett more than Manaya, and he costs less but i think the industry probably likes Manaya more i thought Manaya was toast like watching him during <laughs> the short in 2020 season and to see his velocity seep away. Yeah. I saw him pitch in person those playoffs. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then, you know, he's had fluctuations velo-wise for his whole career. Like yeah. Even as a prospect, there were stretches where he was sitting four to seven and then way down in the 88 to 91 range and like just sort of yo-yoing back and forth. But I agree with you. Like I think that Bassett at this point has proven that he's an above average piece in your rotation. Like there's there's not a playoff rotation that Chris Bassett wouldn't crack I don't I don't think like he's at least going game three or four for just about any right. team in baseball yeah um, I feel that whereas Manaya I could see maybe being on the fringe of that he's on the team in baseball where you'd put that to the test the most and he'll still start so all right so then let's talk about the other team that is rebuilding I suppose in in Cincinnati the way that the money with Cincinnati has has balanced the deals has made the prospect packages that they've got back in return look less reasonable than what Oakland's gotten back in my opinion yeah basically like Oakland didn't have any bad contracts to shed and so Oakland was getting rid of people that were paid money but they were worth more money than that two teams and Cincinnati was getting rid of Eugenio Suarez who I guess people just think is really underwater I think so uh you know he had that one year where he broke the single season home run record for third baseman and when you, you want to play the arbitrary endpoints game, he's got more home runs over the last, you know, four seasons than anybody else in baseball. But Which is wild. Uh, the truth is that he, I guess the nice way of putting it is 
he f- continued to fall down the defensive spectrum, <laughs> even as the Reds tried to shoehorn him up the defensive spectrum <laughs> I mean, that when was they really added bad. Mike Moustakis. And they didn't have a shortstop, really. And they were just like, well, I guess Kyle Farmer's our best defensive shortstop there for a little while. Yeah. Uh, or should we have Jose Barrero, you know, do, you know, the Mike Zanino thing? Didn't they start Moustakis out at second? Maybe. I know he for sure played a bunch of second. And they had Jose Iglesias. Then for a little while, they had two unbelievable defensive shortstops in Jose Iglesias and Freddie Galvis a yeah. little bit at the same time. But yeah, yeah. like... Suarez is not Suarez a shortstop. Deal. That was very funny. I don't know why they tried it. I He's mean, barely a first baseman. <laughs> anymore like i don't know it's going to be interesting to see how he does in seattle but i think that like you know i feel bad for joey Votto and some of the other good reds i think that there was i saw you know someone on twitter with regard to the sunny gray deal like some sorry like dummy was in my mentions about like the evaluation that i have on chase petty chase petty high schooler from new jersey who the twins picked toward the back of the first round Look, the track record of high school pitchers who throw this hard this young is terrible. Like, it is horrible. That makes sense. Tyler Kolek and Riley Pint and, like, Jared Kelly's not doing so hot. Like, it is not a great list to be on when you're sitting 96-plus already at age 17, 18. And I know it's counterintuitive to like the guys who don't throw as hard as these other guys, all else being equal. And maybe Chase Petty is a freak. Like, he is super-duper athletic. Even though he's only, like, 6'1", he's got a great body. The fact that he's generating that kind of velocity at that size is already impressive. But to ask a guy who's going to need the whole, the, all, all the years of, of development between when you pick a guy and when he has to go on your 40 man for a high school player, that's, that's four years. Chase Petty's just, his elbow is playing Russian roulette every, once a week, every week for the next four years at 96 miles an hour plus. So, you know, the idea, you know, and again, this is just some rando on Twitter, although it's a rando with a couple thousand Twitter followers tells you what you need to know about that platform. But like, you know, this guy basically said, Sonny Gray is an above average pitcher, so a 55. And yet you have a 40 plus on Chase Petty insinuating that I should have like a 55 on Chase Petty who just went in the back of the first round. If he was a 55, he would have gone to the top three, like totally ignoring the length of Sonny Gray's contract. Totally ignoring Sonny Gray's salary or anything about like Sonny Gray's own injury history, like impacting the value that you get back for a guy like that in trade. And and I thought, you know, the twins to move on from a guy like Chase Petty while you are putting together like a whole new pitching staff, basically, like you're trying to reinsert yourself into competing in an AL Central that is getting better to add Sonny Gray to a mix of of young pitchers makes a lot of sense, I think. Yeah. Uh, and to do it for a guy who's like a couple years away and is probably, even if things do work out for Chase Petty, like chances are he's just a good reliever. I, I thought that made a lot of sense for them and that, yeah, Cincinnati's heavily impacted by asking people to eat money. I mean, I don't think the Sunny Gray trade is very different from the Bassett trade. Like those are those are kind of similar things, right? Like a, a pitcher who's paid, you know, well, but who anyone would sign to that deal, I think. It, sure. Or like if you ask the Dodgers, hey, would you take this guy at this price? They definitely say yes. I think that's the oh, case yeah. for, for both Bassett and Gray. So that that one, like, yeah, you know, whatever. Like the return is not huge because people are worried about Sunny Gray's injury risk. Totally there. The trade where they basically package away Suarez it seems like a management directive, right? Like management said, get rid of this contract. And they said, well, yeah. we don't want to. That's that's not good for a rebuild. And management said, okay, get rid of the contract anyway. You know, noted, <laughs> ignored. So I don't know. It's hard to judge them on that one. 
because they don't the front office wasn't the one pulling the strings there right yeah i don't think that the reds front office was all about you know i like brandon williamson quite a bit but i'm sure that they were not like let's get rid of jesse winker and somebody else who in the era of the universal dh probably still has some amount of everyday value we would play every day Right. Yeah, I don't think so. So, you know, this is one of those things where I think it's important for listeners to try to separate the front office from what the owners are directing them to do budgetarily and then what the front office has to do transactionally to try to make that stuff work. Nick Crawl was not like, hey, I have a brilliant idea. Right. Like, I'm sure (laughs) he was not very interested in doing this. It's, um, It's an interesting position that they're put in. You know, one thing I've been thinking about recently is, do you think that the Reds will compete for a playoff spot? with the current front office in place? I would like to think that they will be allowed to try, given the fact that management, that ownership has dictated that they start to do this type of stuff. So it's like, like if you, five years off, right? This Reds team right now? I guess so. I mean, the system isn't bad. They, there's... When they brought Kyle Bodie in to help develop pitching in the way that he likes to do that... There was clearly still a disconnect between what the team was doing on the scouting and acquisition side and what it is that the driveline folks and that system of development is good at doing. Right. Like when you have that system in place for developing pitchers, you don't need to draft Joe Boyle who throws 100 miles an hour and has no idea where it's going. You need to draft like your the guy. Your core competency is making people throw harder. Right. That's the whole thing. So some of that stuff... You know, that disconnect was eerie, and now Bodie's not there anymore, okay? And surely, like, the principles that made, like, that that's the tech and the the procedure to develop the players is still there. But yeah, it's like the equivalent of bringing in, or I guess it's the inverse of this, right? Where, like, I'm going to bring in a new pitcher from the bullpen, and then he's going to intentionally walk this guy, Right, like, why not just have the guy you're going to take out do the intentional pass and then bring in the new reliever? Like, if the ownership's idea is this is not the group that we want doing things going forward, then it would make sense to install that group before you start doing the rebuild. Right? Why would you trust the people who you plan on firing to start this very important part of you being competitive again? So so I, I would like to think that this sequence means that this group will get to see it through and try to compete at some point here soon again. That makes sense to me. I'm curious if any of these like red size markets have actually done that. I mean, the Royals have, right? The Royals have. But a lot of these teams kind of don't really have a a solid enough plan. Perhaps the Reds have it built together correctly. But I get the feeling that they're going to do this, but they're kind of in an awkward position on the Major League side where it sounds like they're saying they're going to keep Castillo for some reason. (laughs) <laughs> um, they're trading for Mike Miner, like because they're they're satisfying ownership wants there, right? Again, like I I think that front offices, especially at the decision making level, are full of a bunch of dudes who love min min maxing, and like if they're losing, they want to lose it all, and if they're winning, they want to win it all, and they they think very bottom liney, which is why you install them at the top of the front office. I'm sure they don't actually want to keep Castillo if it if they can. <laughs> Or trade for Mike Miner. I guess. I don't know how much of the optics of any of this stuff actually impact people's decision making. I think it's very person to person who cares about stuff like that. But yeah. maybe, you know, yay, excitement, baseball's back and our team's getting rid of all of our good players. Like if if your team is out of it in May 
and then you trade Luis Castillo, maybe there's something about that that is more palatable to your fan base in, in a way that ownership cares about. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Is there like a Luis Castillo bobblehead day that is the, you know, they're waiting to see through or something like that? Like it could be anything. The whims of owners sometimes, like just some of the stuff you hear about, like Ken Kendrick and some of these guys, like. Like the reason that the Diamondbacks took such a bath on trading Starling Marte to the Marlins is because everyone knew Ken Kendrick wasn't going to pick up his option because yeah. he was loose-lipped about it. And so like it's not the D-backs front office fault that like stuff like that makes that trade on paper look horrible. So there's all kinds of stuff like that operating in the background that we just have no idea. Yeah. So so what else? What else from today? Do you, you want to talk about the Chris Bryant signing at all? I mean, and I think complain more about the weird online culture that seems to <laughs> pervade all of these decisions. <laughs> it's worth uh, flying over that. I I got very grumpy <laughs> about the way that people talk about baseball today, basically because I think you should either get to say players are underpaid and the PA deserves more, or you should get to say I want to evaluate everything from a dollars versus zips maximizing or dollars versus your model maximizing perspective but you can't do both you can't be like man i want every player to get more money but not chris bryant the rockies they're so dumb why do they spend money there's a (laughs) there's this awkward disconnect because i mean look the rockies are sometimes an often inept front office it doesn't seem like it's it's working the way it should and i don't know what the exact reasons for that are and I don't want to talk about other people doing their job badly. That, that's rude. But, you know, they've, they've had a, a lot of missteps in the past few years. Trading Arenado and the way they whatever know, yeah. was the deal with, like, the not trading John Gray, but then not giving him a qualifying offer, but then right. not making a serious offer to retain him either. Like, that was that was all very strange. They've made some bad decisions. I don't know. Like, I want to see Chris Bryant sock some dingers. Like, this is not a bad signing. It's not making them worse. If it, if you think that, like, they should have signed a different superstar, okay. But I don't think that's what anyone's making fun of them for. They're making fun of them because they're not good and they're signing a good player. Right, yeah. I I had the same reaction you did to the reaction, except privately because <laughs> I'm just tr- I'm trying to be done with this space now. Like, I'm just done with it. But clearly, like, not so much that I didn't see some of the reaction, right? Like, because my brain sucks and is addicted to this and I'm trying to fight it, I guess, but yeah, I guess I'm in addictive. a boat with like millions and millions of other people. But yeah, like to me, this is more of an issue of like the online culture and maybe our, our culture more broadly about like the way we interact with putting our opinions out there and why and the feedback we get there from uh, hmm. and what that reinforces in our, in our brains. But like, you know, Chris Bryant and the Rockies just whatever like Chris Bryant if he's happy and the Rockies got a good player like I don't care I don't need to see Chris Bryant on the, on the Dodgers or or on the Yankees or on the Phillies like I don't care where he plays yeah so I agree with you the Rockies are the Rockies are weird they've done weird stuff they are weird to deal with just from team standpoint and from my standpoint like it is not always an enjoyable experience to have to deal with the Rockies to like confirm, Hey, this guy I'm looking at has a TJ cast on. When did he have TJ? Oh, well, uh, uh, no, like I'm looking at him. Like I'm standing 10 feet from this kid. Like tell me when he had TJ, I help keep the database. Like, please. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Like, come on guys. But some of those people aren't around anymore. And I do think for the most part that Bill Schmidt drafts well, like a bunch of the guys 
who Bill Schmidt drafted, including a bunch of like these high school hitters, like they just turn out to be pretty good. Like Ryan McMahon is pretty good. And yeah, know, I like think Brendan Rogers is like acceptable. Brendan Rogers is another one of those guys where his approach is not great. And so he's one of those guys who we historically should have rounded down on, but like, yeah, he's fine too. And they have a mostly homegrown team that like they, the Rays took a bath on the Herman Marquez deal. Like, so not everything has been bad. And there was a little while there where it looked like the Rockies were set up to compete for a little bit. And it just hasn't been that way. But I don't yeah. think it means they shouldn't try to sign Chris Bryan, especially when you do have this sort of interesting core. Like you have to, if you're the Rockies, because of the volatility, like no three-run lead in cores is safe. You have to be, you want to, the stability of like run differential, you have to win a game by by seven. You have to like outscore your opponents commensurate with being like a 108-win team to win 100 games, I think. On the other uh, hand, if you're, the now if you're a losing team, that helps you out. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the volatility, if you're bad, I guess, does help you be closer to the thing. But but yeah, like, I don't know. It is kind of weird that Chris Bryant's going somewhere that feels like it is inconsequential. But, you know, yeah. it doesn't... I don't think that it means that the Rockies, what they're going to draft maybe eighth instead of third or something like that like whatever <laughs> who do you think will play in a division series or better first so i don't exactly know what they call um the different rounds is it just gonna be wild card dscs I still know. i guess yeah who will play in one of those first the reds or the rockies <sighs> the rockies have it's hard to pick the rockies here it's they, hard uh, to pick the rockies just because of the juggernauts in the division like san yes. francisco and the Dodgers both there, and the Diamondbacks being further along this path that the Rockies Padres are. have Machado and Tatis, so like you know, right? But it feels like the, the Padres are like a Jenga tower that has yeah. precariously been built. But that's a rough team that to not have named yet after you've named three teams in the division for sure. And then at least in the NL Central, like the Cardinals are always good. kind of hovering in a good spot, while the Brewers seem like they have a sustainable thing going. But not as not to the level that I think the Dodgers and the Giants do, while the Cubs and Pirates are rebuilding. So I guess I would say, although again, like they are both a little further along than the Reds are at this point, yeah. Because the Cubs started to pull the ripcord six months ago. So I guess I would say the Reds. Yeah, they also. I have a lot of confidence that when the Cubs get good again, they will spend a lot. Yeah. Like I don't yeah. really have that with the Reds, but like. I mean, Chicago's a big market. Like, they have a good TV deal. They'll sell a lot of tickets. They will probably, when they actually get, like, to 85 wins, try to get to 90 pretty quickly in a way that I think other teams won't. Who do you think the pressure is on now to make a move or two as we get going here? Do the Yankees come to mind? The Yankees do, except that I don't know what's left. Like, they kind of just made, they did two half measures already, right? Well, Donaldson, I think. I liked that trade for them in the end. It was strange, but it really improved the third base situation. It did, didn't cost them anything they cared about tremendously much. Like, <laughs> if they had not tendered Gary Sanchez, I would not have been surprised. I was with the scout the day after the Isaiah Kiner Falefa, the first trade, who could not believe that the Twins got him for what they got him for, who like thinks that he's, you know, a plus defender at short, an 80 glove at third base, and a league average bat. Otherwise, like they think he's a four win guy. So I think that him in New York, especially given some of the problems that they've had with like Glaber Torres being consistent, I think that's interesting. And I think Donaldson, Donaldson's fine. Like he's one of those guys who has, 
said mean stuff about the site because he doesn't know how math works. I mean, his haircut yeah. is an indication that he has poor judgment. So, <laughs> you know, I want to like Josh Donaldson because, you know, he's a badass incredible baseball player for the last decade who, you know, had an interesting minor league trajectory and stuff. But, and then Gary Sanchez, you know, I just think that it wouldn't surprise me if, if folks in New York were just like, I'm so tired of this. Yeah. I think there's a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, no, through some combination of like the way that he interacted with New York media and the way New York media interacted with him and the way that, that like spiraled into his interactions with everyone else, it's just not good. Like it was a bad situation for him and for the team. So and that's been going on forever. Forever. Like, it's been going on. It was going at, on when I lived since there. I've been gone for three years. Yeah. It was going on when he was in the minors. Yeah. It's it's kind of awkward. Since I'm doing these uh, which will happen first things, I have I have a different one for you. Who do you think will accumulate more war with the Yankees? Isaiah Kiner-Falefa or Josh Donaldson? I'll take. So they got two years of each. I'll take IKF. I've got Donaldson by a mile. I'll take Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. I just if if for no other reason because of Donaldson's body breaking down, which again I that's not a thing I, I wish on him. Absolutely not. Yeah. Never, never, ever on you know my worst enemy would I would I wish injury. But that is if I'm lining up who I think is yeah, more stable. That's, that's the risk, yeah. right? With Donaldson, they they each have two years left, so it's not like you know you need him to hold up for another seventy years or anything. But if one of them is going to miss half a season, it's going to be Donaldson. Yeah, probably true. One thing interesting, though, about kind of Falefa is that I think he's a really good defender. The eye test says he's a pretty good defender. Models have no clue. Like, yeah. OAA, which is pretty good for this stuff, thought he was one of the worst infield defenders in baseball last year, which is wild. It makes no sense to me. Like, yeah. I've, I've watched him play. He looks very good. He has a lot of range. I'm very curious, like, what about his defending makes it so confusing? Defensive run safe thought he was one of the best infielders. And there just aren't guys with big disagreements like this. I'm I'm super curious to see what happens to him defensively this year. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what it could be that's doing that. That it could be positioning, although I guess OAA would probably account for some of that stuff. So OAA but should yeah. theoretically be positioning agnostic, right? Because it knows where you are at the start of the play. But are the Rangers like the best team at defensive positioning that would take him from the best player to the worst or the worst player to the best? I don't I don't think so. And I don't think so either. Not only that, but he ranked well last year in uh, OAA at third base, and he, he looked the part. He won a gold glove. Uh, not last year, 2020. So I'm, I'm very curious to see what's going on there. I mean, I'm not really a huge believer in his bat, but I, I think he's a 90 WRC plus guy, and that's fine. Like, that's really nice for a good defensive shortstop. That's a great player. I like what the Yankees did there, but I don't think they have room. Like, who would they add now? I mean, it'd be great for them if they added Correa, but something tells me they aren't. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that they'll end up adding Correa. I think what they end up doing at catcher now will be kind of interesting. Like, if they're gonna trade for Sean Murphy, <laughs> right? That's the thing that I think is is plausible. Their system is good. They have a surplus of young shortstops now. I don't think that you don't necessarily have to trade Anthony Volpe, but. Ozzy Peraza is on your 40-man now. Alexander Vargas will be soon. Uh, the Yankees have shown with some of the deals they made with like Pittsburgh and stuff last year that they are a little bit more willing to make context-based adjustments to the way they think about trading based on stuff like 40-man pressure and 
positional redundancy and stuff. So, you know, I think that it would be interesting. I think there's an there's an interesting fit there in terms of like the A's and and the Yankees and uh the Yankees good young international players and Anthony Volpe. Like there's just so many up the middle players in that system that they could conceivably move some of them. And the Yankees have been a pitching factory for like the last ten years. So there are plenty of those guys hanging out in the upper reaches of the Yankee system who kind of get squeezed out of being on the big league roster who, as we said before, Oakland tends to like to target in trades. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be Yoendries Gomez. It doesn't have to be, you know, Ken Waldachuk, but it wouldn't surprise me if if the A's liked Ron Marinaccio or if they liked JP Sears or whatever. Like those are their types of guys. Brendan Beck. Yeah, so, so if, I think that's possible. That seems like a possible next domino. Aside from that, I mean, the AL is just really close to the top. So all those teams, I think, should be trying to improve still, like to the extent that there's an obvious thing they can do. The Astros signing Correa would make sense. Cleveland is the other one where they have all these up-the-middle guys, a lot of whom were just added to the 40-man this offseason. Jose Tena and Brian Rocchio. They've got Gabriel Arias. They have Andres Jimenez. Like Those are all up-the-middle guys middle infielders who yeah have real industry value but they're would they be trying to win this year would they be like trying to consolidate them into more prospects they seem like they're kind of they don't really have enough on the major league roster to where you're like oh if i can just add i don't know sean murphy then i'm in the driver's seat like they they have a ways to go i think yeah, I don't know. I think they're a little bit closer than that. I kind of like the makeup of Cleveland's roster. I think that some of the stuff they've tried to do, platooning in the outfield, that has failed over and over and over again. You know, like that's that's a thing that they might be able to address via one of these deals. I know that their ownership is seemingly totally uninclined to yeah spend money. Yes, yeah, so let's say they're doing it by trade. Their their outfield is basically non-existent right now, so they they need something there. Right, you're, it's it's my boy Stephen Kwan and Nolan Jones probably playing some combination of like third base in the outfield. Like they're just going to try to do this again, I think, where they have Miles Straw playing center field and like Kwan and platooning in one of the other corners or something like that. Like that seems to be the path towards something. Yeah. But now we, you know the Jose Ramirez rumor mill was buzzing before the Matt Chapman trade, so. I know that I forget who reported it, so I apologize to whoever actually did this work. It wasn't me, but I know that like someone reported that the Blue Jays have considered Jose Ramirez as a second baseman, like trading for him and then I saw that playing too, him yeah. at second base, and that would be pretty interesting. I think it, it's just hard for me to imagine. I think there's just too many positional holes to make that team like really the offense to make the offense look good enough for it to make sense to go for the playoffs. I mean, that's that's maybe too harsh, but. They kind of have two outfield spots they need to improve at. And I mean, I like Ahmed Rosario. I might be the highest person I've ever talked to <laughs> in the last two years about him. I think a lot of people just don't like his approach at all and just don't think it'll ever work. And Go back in. I think I've ranked him second or third in all of baseball at one point. And yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, he was very wasn't, exciting he wasn't when he was good. coming up. It hasn't, uh, hasn't really panned out the same way, but he's an athlete. He's a big guy. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was, you know, I was, you know me. So at that time, especially before I put my hand on the hot stove enough times that I was just like, I need to stop (laughs) coming, like, I really need to cool it with some of these guys who, (laughs) you know, whose physiques I'm envious of, (laughs) like, 
but uh, who and who just decide to swing at everything. But yeah, like you know, Jimenez is a an average player right now. I think that's so he's nice, but I don't think he's going to be like a like. I just think their offense needs a lot, and you'd have to get those guys fully retained, right? Like they're not going to add payroll. So right, I think it seems it seems hard. It just seems really hard for me for them to take what they have now and turn it into a playoff contender this year. I mean, not because they don't have the the prospect to do it, just because I don't know where they would. Like, I don't know who they'd get, basically, that's going to fit all the constraints they have. Sure. I think that's fair. I think that the White Sox lack of a farm system at this stage makes it so that if anyone is in this area with them, like if we look up in the middle of the summer and the White Sox are sort of in the same ballpark as KC or Detroit or even Cleveland, like if Cleveland can just put themselves in that mix where they seem to be in perpetuity where... They feel cool about living around the 80 win mark every year, you know, as cheap as they can be. I think like the other teams in that division might be, might have the chips to push in prospect wise that like gives them a deal at the deadline or before it that can make a big difference in, in that division. Yeah. You do have the advantage of like, you can wait to see if you're in the race. That is nice. Sure. Yeah. I think that's. That would be fine. It's just that like so much of Cleveland's 40-man, I think it was like 25% of the 40-man at the deadline in November, they got rid of and then replaced with young prospects. Like They would not budge on the asks for any of the guys who were on their bubble and then ended up getting rid of most of them for nothing. Not all of them for nothing, but most of them. Yeah, that that seems subpar. So here we go. It is time. Spring training will begin as we're sitting here. It'll begin tomorrow. But as folks are listening to this, it will have it will have already, already begun. begun. So enjoy, everyone. I don't know, is there anything else that you wanted to to touch on before we we split? No, I think that's it. I'm very excited to see. You know, we've mainly been touching on teams who are like making a lot of transactions. I'm really excited to just see baseball be back and kind of full stadiums and crowds. I want to see Jacob Degrom's first start. Really looking forward to that. Oh my god! I went, <laughs> I went to to see Degrom. My friend Annie, who like cuts my hair, she and I went to see Degrom's start against the Diamondbacks. Like we paid, you know, 125 bucks a pop to sit front and center right behind home plate to watch Degrom. And Annie grew up a Mets fan. She's not a huge baseball fan or anything like that. She, but she she grew up a Mets fan for a while and moved to Arizona in the early 2000s. And She's a novice when it comes to any of this stuff. Like she just cuts my hair every couple months and we talk and like hang out and talk about baseball. And she was watching DeGrom and like her eyes were bugging out of her head because even she knew that this was ridiculous. Yeah. It took a couple innings before we saw a pitch under 98 miles an hour. And she was like, the only other guy I can think of who I've seen in the stadium who looks like this and is just overpowering people in the way that this guy is, is Randy Johnson. And I was like, yeah. you know, that's right. That's right. <laughs> you nailed yeah, he's, it, Randy. He's very enjoyable <laughs> to watch pitch. I just love the, like, you know, perfectly dotted glove side fastball, glove side fastball, glove side fastball. And it's like, what is he going to throw next? Like another pitch, same spot. Like, <laughs> I've just never seen anybody throw. I mean, I just wasn't of a smart enough baseball observer when Pedro was at his peak to really be paying that much attention to this. But like, yeah, the combination of just like absolutely pinpoint command. And then it's also just going a hundred and the breaking ball looks like it is just, just so fun. I'm really looking forward to that. That's my like, you know, there, there were no transactions involving Jacob DeGrom this off season. So we talk about it a little less, but it's going to be great. 
I went to that whole Mets series. I, I bought a ticket for every game and I got to see DeGrom and Stroman and then Peterson. <laughs> yes, That's yes, when- no. I soloed I soloed Stroman on my own and I love watching Stroman pitch so much. He's just got a certain like way about him that I Yeah, I he's really fun love. for a different reason, which is that he's like I feel like he really wants to win on the mound. And I kinda like DeGrom because he's just so <laughs> it's like clinical. They're very fun for different reasons. All right. Well, yeah. Enjoy the baseball, everybody. It's it's going on all around you all the time now. This is one hell of a weekend to be a sports fan to put on the NCAA tournament. Put on some of your college baseball games. You got the NBA really cranking up, and and spring has sprung anew. Hope springs eternal for baseball fans again. I think they're we're gonna have a fun year with like real parity. I think in a lot of ways, except probably in the you know we'll have the two horse race in the NOS. But otherwise, yeah. like I think a lot of these divisions are totally up in the air. Hope springs uh, eternal, unless you're a Reds fan this year, in which case, sorry, yeah, that's no fun. That's my next one. So I'm I'm cranking out the the raise list now on my own. It's what I'm gonna. I actually got to hop on at the phone with a scout as soon as we are done here, and then my next pod of teams will be Reds, Guardians, Dodgers. Oh my god, the Dodgers list. I've actually started laying track on that list. Holy crap, that system is unbelievable. And then the White Sox, which hopefully will take me like four hours to do. <laughs> Uh, but for Ben Clemens and for producer Dylan Higgins, I have been Eric Long and Higgin. Thank you for listening, everybody, and enjoy the baseball. We'll talk to you again soon. This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the program, consider telling a friend or two about it. It helps us out. Aside from checking out that Fangraphs.com shop, Don't forget to also sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It's the best way to keep up on all the many great things we have going on. Free to your inbox every weekday. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.